Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Two years on from COVID, and we're still living in arguably one of the most turbulent periods in recent memory. And today's headlines certainly amplify the things going wrong in the world. Women in Iran who have been protesting. The war is raging now between Russia and Ukraine. Inflation is a real challenge to American families. Climate change has become a climate crisis. The crises feel particularly acute when our country is facing overwhelming gridlock politically, culturally, and in the areas where we need movement the most. But there have also been moments where we've seen slivers of hope. We now have three safe and very effective vaccines. It's been impressive, the progress the last 100 days. You've got to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. And there is something about meditating on the moments that are hopeful and lifting up the people who keep trying to catalyze change, even when there is gridlock and uncertainty, that feels very American. We are a nation that is no stranger to having to evolve, to adapt to the times, correct for past sins, move forward and create innovative solutions that can be adopted the world over. And when we think about the challenges ahead that we collectively face, It's important that leaders rise to the occasion with resiliency and urgency. Because the reality is, we don't have the time or the resources to waste. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tarani, and this is American Metamorphosis. If we talk about how much food we waste every day in the United States, think of the largest football stadium. So Texas A&M, University of Nebraska, one of those stadiums that holds 100,000 people. And we could fill that to the top at least once or twice a day, every day, with perfectly good food. My name is Jasmine Crow Houston. I am the CEO and founder of Gooder. We are a startup based in Atlanta, Georgia, but operating across the United States. Focus on ending hunger in food waste. Is it household food waste you're talking about or is it restaurant food waste or grocery store food waste? So yeah, think of us almost as like a reverse Instacart or Uber Eats in a sense that we work with large-scale businesses and when they have excess food, we've inventoried everything it is that they sell. So we're working with enterprise corporate cafeterias, hotels, convention centers, stadiums and arenas, and we're doing both prepared food plus raw ingredients. We make it really easy for them to request a pickup in real time. They're simply clicking on the items, hitting request to pickup, we deploy a network of drivers and then deliver it to a local nonprofit organization. Jasmine never expected to run a tech startup. In fact, she spent years working at nonprofits and charities and even hosted a pop-up restaurant in Atlanta to feed the hungry when it dawned on her that there had to be a better way, a next step in linking food to the people who need it. One of the big things that people kept on asking me during the process was, you know, who donated the food? 
And the truth was nobody. I was couponing, I was price matching, I was cooking all this food myself. And I started thinking, I need to get this food donated. Like, why are we not getting food donated when all this food is, you know, available? And so I Googled what happens to extra food from restaurants at the end of the night. And I just became really blown away with how much food goes to waste. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, there's no way all this food is going to waste while all these people are going hungry. Well, truth was, yes, it definitely was. We are wasting right now, 40% of all the food that we produce in this country goes to waste. Beyond that, what makes it even worse is that we're spending nearly 2% of all US GDP on food that we never eat. So we're talking over $220 billion a year is getting spent on food that never gets ate. And that's just crazy. How many people, by comparison, are food insecure? You know, that number is changing on a daily basis. I was at the White House's conference on hunger, health and nutrition, and the latest number that I heard was about 44 million people. At the height of the pandemic, we were almost at 56 million. So it was a really tough time the last two years, but we still have 40 million plus people that are experiencing food insecurity. And beyond that, the cost of food is really going up. So a lot of food access is going to be hampered by what we're seeing with the cost of this food. The Conference on Hunger, Nutrition and Health was held by the Biden administration in September, pushing for public and private sector coordination on ending hunger in the U.S., This was the first time in 50 years that the issue was being addressed at this scale. And it's true, while the government has historically played a role in abating hunger through programs like SNAP benefits or tax credits, Jasmine is trying to manage her expectations. She knows from experience that these issues have a tendency to fall prey to partisan politics. One of the biggest things that came out of the Biden conference that the White House had is the Congress just is not often on the same page. And so they're not working to push legislation through. One of the the big call outs that he noted is something that lifted nearly 2 million kids out of poverty was that $300 monthly tax credit that families were getting. That lifted millions of kids out of poverty. And yet Congress doesn't want to keep that going. So there's a lot of hurdles. Tell us a little bit about what you'd like the government to do, you know, what the role that the government should be playing when it comes to food insecurity and food waste. I think the U.S. government should certainly adopt legislation and policy that would make it illegal for businesses to waste perfectly good food. Other countries like France and Italy and Denmark, it's actually illegal you get fined if you don't donate it to a local NGO. We don't have that here. For people that haven't experienced hunger, going hungry, that's a painful thing. It's a painful thing physically. It impacts your ability to be, you know, mentally alert, emotionally alert, to be able to function, to be able to have a job. Uh, You know, it's there. There's a real kind of knock on effect as to what it means when Americans are hungry. So how how do you see food insecurity and food waste affecting our resilience as a nation? So many people have never experienced being their full selves because they're always playing catch up. Even students that go to school, they get free breakfast and lunch. We don't think about what it means that they didn't get dinner last night or that they're coming to school on Monday, having missed probably three to four meals over the weekend. 
And beyond the impact for Americans on an individual level, Jasmine wants people to know just how dramatically food waste intersects with sustainability and our collective capacity to fight climate change. I don't think we're talking about that enough. As food waste sits and rots, the landfill is the leading contributor to global climate change. In fact, Project Drawdown last year said that food waste was the number one thing next to the energy grid, which should let us know how big of a deal this is that we need to combat in order to fight climate change. And yet I still talk to companies that say, I don't think we have a food waste problem, you know, because we're a tech company, but you could be a tech company with a hundred thousand employees across multiple cafeterias serving food every day. You're part of the problem if you're not part of the solution. And that's what people have to know. And it, it sucks to say that, but it really is the truth. Jasmine is aware that she can't single-handedly solve hunger and food waste, and nor should she have to. But if her motivation and her sense of responsibility around change could be multiplied across sectors and industries, the ripple effects would be stronger, louder and more substantial. I feel really passionately about what I'm trying to do. I got to realize that everybody may not feel the same, but I also have to realize everyone hasn't been hungry and they don't know what it's like and they don't know what it's like to have friends and family members that don't know where their next meal is coming from. And I do. I will stand at the end of my life and be able to say like people were hungry and I fed them and I want more people to do that. I don't do it for the money. I don't do it for, you know, fame. I do it because it needs to be done. Listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. In our fourth season, we are talking not just about competitiveness, but resilience. This is a time of great uncertainty untenable geopolitical tensions, shaky economic forces, and the sweeping impacts of climate change are creating a state of heightened stress and constant change. And industries, institutions, and individuals are asking how they can prepare for the unknown while staying ahead. In each sector, that will require redefining competitiveness, measuring not just dollars and cents, but the holistic impacts of business practices and public policy on society. In this case, that means working on big picture solutions in spite of gridlock. Because on urgent issues like climate change and sustainability, we need to act now to save the planet. I feel like it went pretty fast from nobody cared and nobody tried to do anything to everybody cares and nobody thinks we can do anything. And there's a middle spot in between that, which is that we can do things and that a lot of people care. So that's the world that I live in. I'm Leah Stokes. I'm a professor at UC Santa Barbara, where I work on energy and climate policy. I run a podcast called A Matter of Degrees, and I work with two nonprofits advancing climate policy, Rewiring America and Evergreen Action. So climate policy, I feel like, is one of the most intractable issues, particularly in this current polarized political climate. What makes you so passionate about this area? 
Well, I've been working on climate change for about 17 plus years now. Over the last couple of years, you know, people really have started to recognize that climate change is happening now. We've already warmed the planet by more than one degree. It's about 1.2 degrees centigrade almost. And the consequences are here. They've actually been here for decades. We're at a moment now where people get it. They see climate change every day and they really want to make a difference. This may be a rallying moment around climate issues for the public, but our government is still deeply divided on addressing it. Take the historic passage of the Inflation Reduction Act in August of 2022, which contains billions of dollars worth of environmental policy. While it may seem that backdoor negotiating on Capitol Hill is the only reason the legislation became a reality, the road to its passage was made up of a chorus of voices calling for action over a long period of time. Leah, for example, spent countless hours gathering policy ideas with other climate activists and mounting a pressure campaign starting from the Democratic primary back in 2019 and continuing on after Joe Biden was elected. The groups fighting from the outside, environmental justice groups, youth movements, traditional climate groups, new climate groups said, you cannot let this issue go. And keep in mind that a lot of other important policies were on the agenda. We're talking about, um, you know, much deeper prescription drug benefits, home health care aids, paid leave, child tax credit, really important policies that I believe in that died, that ended on the cutting room floor. And the climate movement just kept saying, absolutely not. This is our last opportunity. Can you just walk us through a little bit on the Inflation Reduction Act? Like, what does the Inflation Reduction Act do when it comes to climate change and climate policy? And why is it so historic? So one of the really exciting things about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it includes a bunch of policies for everyday Americans to help them electrify. What does it mean? Well, right now, you may not realize, but most of us live in many fossil fuel plants, our houses. These are places where Fossil fuels are burned, whether that's to heat our home, heat hot water, cook our dinner. We're burning fossil fuels all the time. And there's also usually a car or two in the driveway, which also runs on fossil fuels. And so what do we have to do to address climate change? We know we have to stop using fossil fuels. And that means instead we can use efficient electric appliances that are not just better for the planet. They're better for our health and better for our pocketbooks. I'm talking about electric vehicles, heat pumps, which are these new technologies that can both heat and cool your home, replacing your furnace and your air conditioner all in one go, a heat pump hot water heater, and an induction stove, which is an amazing cooktop that basically cooks with magnets and boils water like in a second. It's pretty amazing. One of the provisions in Biden's Inflation Reduction Act is money allocated to make it easier for people to switch to clean energy options, regardless of their income bracket. There's all these amazing new technologies and Americans want to adopt them. So what the Inflation Reduction Act does is it makes it more affordable for people to make that switch. There's $7,500 for an electric vehicle, uh, depending on its manufacturing. There is $4,000 for a used vehicle that's electric. And then there's also money to get that heat pump. And that's really exciting because once you get those electric machines, you, you're doing your part for the planet, but your energy bills, they're going to go down 
in most places because using fossil fuels can be really expensive and it's much better for your health. Because the more and more scientists are doing research, they're realizing that fossil fuel appliances are actually emitting really dangerous levels of air pollution, including carcinogens, things like formaldehyde and benzene inside our homes. Leah believes that the adoption of cleaner energy solutions in our homes won't just be incremental, they'll be exponential. The costs of batteries and electric vehicles have fallen enormously. I think it's about 90% uh, decline in battery costs over 10 years. It's huge. We're seeing the same pattern in solar, and we're about to see the same thing happen for heat pumps. And so when people start adopting these technologies, they actually get more affordable. That helps the next person adopt it. And before you know it, this becomes the dominant way of doing things. So we have the technology now to make a big, big dent in this problem, and it's it's not just on the consumer side, it's also when it comes to jobs. We are already seeing tens of billions of dollars in private investment since the Inflation Reduction Act passed just two months ago. We're seeing all these companies announcing new jobs and factories here in the United States for all kinds of clean energy technologies. So this really is going to be a game changer. This attitude may sound different from other climate experts, who understandably focus on the perils of what we face if we don't tackle climate change. And Leah shares their concerns. But she believes that spotlighting our potential and possibilities could be critical in getting around systemic gridlock and failures and making significant progress. How does positive framing and the language of metamorphosis and transition and transformation, how does that affect public opinion in a way that talking and focusing more on the negative might? These more positive frames, action-oriented frames can make people feel a sense of empowerment, make them feel efficacious, like they're able to do things. So I think that feeling empowered comes really from working with others and being involved in action. And we can often feel despair and demobilized when we're sort of uh, lost in a sense of guilt and thinking of ourselves only as consumers and individuals rather than as citizens that can join with others in collective movements that can really make a big difference on policy. I know that there are parts of the Inflation Reduction Act that wouldn't be in there if I hadn't pushed for them. And it's not just about the federal level. People have been joining together, for example, in New York City. I'm talking about We Act and New York Communities for Change. And they managed to, in one year, run a campaign that said that no more new construction in New York City can be built with gas. And so going forward, if you want to build a new building, including a skyscraper, you can't put fossil fuel appliances in it. That's huge. Leah acknowledges that this is part of a long game, but she believes that crisis can often be a great catalyst to jumpstart a necessary change to the way that we've always done things, especially when those ways just don't serve us very well today. I really feel that crisis can be an opportunity to reorient. And so often when we have, for example, um, economic crises, recessions, these are opportunities to do green stimulus. But we're talking about an infrastructure change, right? These things are always slow. The building up the fossil fuel-based energy system took decades, really centuries, and dismantling it is not going to be 
a month-long project or a year-long project or even, quite frankly, a decade-long project. That's why we talk about 2050. We've got to cut carbon pollution in half this decade, and then we've got to get all the way down to zero by 2050. This isn't something where you can just flip a switch. It involves really billions of decisions across the world to get rid of a fossil fuel machine and replace it with an electric machine. But we have to start the process now. The Inflation Reduction Act is a giant stepping stone for the United States and will be invaluable in building up our collective well-being and resilience. And just as ending hunger can't be Jasmine's job alone, solving climate change can't just be something we wait for the government to get its act together and unite around. The private sector also has a deep responsibility to change the status quo. I was recently having a discussion with some other directors in boards and um, they were talking about black swan events and they're like, what do we think the next black swan event is going to be? And I said, hey, we've just gone through, we're in the midst of a flock of black swans. It's now thinking about how do all of these pieces come together for us to really begin to figure out a way around it. I'm a mean merchant. I'm a senior partner and managing director at the Boston Consulting Group. Amin thinks a lot about getting through gridlock at every level. And like Leah, he has seen the impact of positive framing on business. I've gone from being a pessimist, just, you know, put my head under the blanket, to, I would say, a, a vocal activist an optimist one as well. I've seen a lot of companies now go in and start looking at climate change as an opportunity for them to really connect and advance the the change that's needed and become a part of growth uh, and, and make that a part of their agenda. You have to figure out what it is that you, as leaders within a company, can do to help either prevent the world around us from beating us down or frankly, for us to figure out how to to protect our people or our families as we go forward. Is there a critical mass for change to happen? Like, what, what is that critical mass? You've got to have about 20% of the people who engage in this to, to begin to start thinking in a certain way, and it leads to then further change. Five to 7%, frankly, is too small that the, their volume gets drowned. 10% begins to start getting noticed, but people can ignore it because you don't hear it often enough. Mm. As you start approaching 20% and definitely above, you reach that tipping point of people both engaging, listening, and either looking to connect or then looking to disconnect. How does the political gridlock um, and the government gridlock that we're seeing particularly acutely here in the United States, and I think it's gotten much worse over the last few years, how does it affect our resiliency and our competitiveness as a nation? I began to recognize that we tend to think about the government as a way that either enables business or prevents business from occurring or supports social change or prevents social change. But when we think about all the various actors in any given economy, the consumers, corporations, government, of course, as a big portion, but only as a portion, the level of change that you can affect with now consumers stepping up and saying, we want things that are green. We're seeing companies step up and say, the government isn't going to do this for me. I need to figure out what I need to do for my own employees. 
or frankly, to bring in more customers that, that believe in what I do. So what, what do you think has happened then? Like what, what change has happened? Because, you know, as we, as we mentioned, the, the gridlock hasn't changed, right? Like, the, you know, the, the things that seem intractable are still just as intractable, maybe even more so. Companies have, I think many of them have relearned the power of an amazing workforce, have relearned that you can't just dictate your terms to your consumer base. The consumers actually have a, an active voice. If you think about many of the, the social movements that have been out there, right? Uh, customers have gone in and boycotted companies that they felt weren't following something that they themselves feel is important. And again- Right, we saw that with voting rights and we saw that with correct. the Black Lives Matter movement. Correct, and most recently we were seeing that with um, uh, reproductive rights, right? What Amin is describing is a bit of an awakening. It's a subtle shift made louder from the pandemic, but made stronger by the growing voices, the needs unmet, and the wherewithal to act. In short, we're seeing change happen in ways that don't have to be legislated, where the call to action for people to think critically about resilience in their own industries is not impeded by political gridlock or dependent on government action. Of course, there are still times when the government does step up, like the Inflation Reduction Act. Although it was an unfortunately rare instance, it also highlighted how influential the public sector is when it takes a stance. This has been a trigger that's unlocked a whole bunch of capital that was sitting on the sidelines, right? Whether it was private equity, whether it's individual investors, whether it's corporations themselves that are looking to say, okay, this is real now. Right? This has enabled us to go do things we were going to do ourselves, but this has now opened up a huge market opportunity for us, us as U.S. corporations, us as U.S. consumers, to be part of this massive new opportunity that exists. Well, and, and also then this has a corollary effect with our nation's resiliency and ability to compete. That's exactly right. The, it, it, so, so what it does is it unleashes innovation, right? What we've seen now for the last, pick a number, 1870s, right? Through the start of the industrial age. Innovation is what drives success for a country. Innovation is what gets the level of the quality of life for the citizens to rise. People are the driving force of change. Innovations don't come from companies. Companies are made up of people who innovate. And so for change to come about, it takes people power and the people elected to positions of power to ideally come together and act as one for maximum impact. So look, I, I grew up in, in South Asia. I, grew, I was born and raised in Pakistan. I, I saw a whole bunch of change go on in the country that I was. And, and then I came to study in the US. I began to work and connect and contribute here. And I realized there is so much I can do, not just for me here, for myself, but frankly, to, to really make a difference to the world around me, to the society around me, to individuals around me. I think that um, you're right in saying that when we are faced with gridlock and inaction and hostile rhetoric and things like erosion of reproductive rights or erosion of voting rights or blockades on climate policy can feel very deflating and defeating. And um, even with all of the problems, the democracy is still has facets and uh, ability to 
create these positive moments of change. And it's just, it's just up to us to try and be catalysts and not be beaten down. The US is only one of very, very few places that give you that support, that give you the the ability to, to create that change, to be part of a wonderful new future. And therefore, it, I really think it's incumbent upon us to step up and, and be able to affect that change. Action for Amin, for Jasmine and for Leah Stokes is not always about predicting the time or the place that a shift will happen, but instead about pushing for it regardless. It can start with a simple act, like changing our mindset on something as big as climate change. Leah, for example, challenges us to think about what we can all save. So there's a lot that has been lost. We can't look away or deny that fact. There is still more that we can save. And everything that we do today tips the balance towards resiliency, tips it towards life. And the work continues on by engaging in collective action, in seeing the opportunity to come together, like Jasmine believes. What's happening in politics should not affect what we need to do in this country to move us forward. You know, there are a lot more of us that are not in politics than there are in Congress, in the White House. And what we've got to do as people is come together to solve these big problems. Throughout this season of American Metamorphosis, we've looked at American competitiveness through the lens of long-term resilience. If you want a solution to be in the market in the next 10 to 20 years, you've actually got to start working on it now. It's a fantastic opportunity. Because being competitive isn't simply about beating others on the world stage. It's about raising the bar for everyone here at home. As a society, we don't just care about your income. We don't just care about your wealth. We care about the whole package of you as a person. And you need to be thinking about the whole child. Because where we go tomorrow is a product of how we act today, from climate and culture to information and education. The concept that information is the very heart of transparency and democracy. We know these things now, and so we all have to act We do have agency. We do have the power to affect that policy. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tarani, and you have been listening to American Metamorphosis. Thanks to our entire Atlantic Rethink team, to Alona Minkowski, Leo Sepkowitz, CJ Ferroni, Emily Beaner, Eleanor Bell-Fox, Mimi Bizinski, Rachel McRae, Devin Rocheford, and Maddie Loosebrook. And of course, to our brilliant editors, Rob Galang and Evan Viola. Thanks as well to Nidhi Sinha, Brooke Boyke, Emily Aptica, Danny Werfel, Chris Grantham, Cordelia Chancellor, Alex Pugue, and Amy Trojan at Boston Consulting Group. Lastly, thank you to all of the brilliant guests who lent us their voices and ideas to shape this season. And thank you to you, the listener. If you have enjoyed American Metamorphosis, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next season of American Metamorphosis, where we continue to unpack the forces that shape our changing world and take them on together. Together.